Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Beaumont. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to Hummingbird, an instrumental written and performed by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Marty Stewart. The five-time Grammy-winning singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, collector, preservationist, and fierce defender of country music's rich traditions will join us later to discuss his career, artistic rebirth, and ongoing artistry. Part one. Well, today's episode is brought to you by the fine people at Pearl Snap Studios. PearlSnapStudios.com, if you happen to be finding them on the internet and not just walking by at their street address. <laughs> uh, you've heard their name before. Um, we're always happy to be able to present Pearl Snap Studios and their services to you because it pretty much is the go-to place to take a song that you've written and have it turned around into a commercial, presentable, pitchable demo that uh, could really wind up getting you a cut. I um I'm sorry, Paul. I'm not paying attention because I know Pearl Snap Studios is in Nashville, and I don't live in Nashville, so this doesn't apply to me. What I just said was PearlSnapStudios.com. It's how you can access them through the uh, information superhighway. Wait a minute. Yeah. So if I have a song, yeah, and I want a demo made of it, I can just send them an MP3 of that song, and they can make the demo. Yeah, and what's amazing is you've never heard of the internet, but you know what an MP3 is. You are an interesting <laughs> you're an interesting beast yourself there. Is my the friend. internet the same thing as the World Wide Webs? Uh yeah, I think well, I think those are competitors like uh, GoBots and Transformers. Uh, like Pepsi and Coke. Right. Uh the World right. Wide Web is uh is the FedEx to the UPS of the information super slab, you called it? Yeah. So if you've had a chance to maybe ask Jeeves, um, <laughs> that's probably what you would have done. Or if you visited Bing. Nah, I or, know all about it. I yeah. use Netscape Navigator. So, um, <laughs> yeah, but Justin and and his team at Pearl Snap Studios, uh, in all seriousness, can do a great demo for you, whether you write country music, R&B, rock, new age, uh, what else? Anything. Um, Zydeco. Zydeco. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm stumped now. That's that's the only genre of music we can only, I'm thinking about We today, can only so. name four genres of music, <laughs> which is why we should <laughs> have a podcast about music. Yeah. yeah. But uh, but no, check out uh, PearlSnapStudios.com and uh, tell Justin that Scott and Paul sent yep, you. Yep, it's GeoCities backslash HTTSP double colon. Oh, boy. PearlSnapStudios.com. <laughs> so Scott, uh, we're actually uh, presenting an interview today with someone who's a, a friend of yours. Yeah, Marty Stewart. Uh, I've gotten to know Marty a little bit over the last uh, year or two. We've had a chance to work on some projects together. I have huge respect for this guy. Yeah, he is um, really probably among country artists the most passionate about country music's roots. He's got a, a historian's mindset in a lot of ways but also a fan's enthusiasm yeah and marty has done a lot to kind of wave the banner for 
country's pioneers. He is all over the Ken Burns country music documentary. We've been talking about that for a few weeks. Um, we've done this little four uh, series, four episodes, uh, starting with Curly Putman, going to Rodney Crowell, Alice Randall, and now Marty Stewart, kind of celebrating country's roots. Uh, Curly, yeah. of course, no longer with us, but a real legend of the classic era of country songwriting. And then um, Rodney and Alice and, and Marty are all over this documentary that, that Ken Burns put together, kind of celebrating country's roots and influence. Um and you couldn't really have a better guy than Marty to be on there talking about uh, country. And, you know, I'm going to say this. Marty Stewart's band, The Fabulous Superlatives, is without a doubt the best country band in America. Wow. Yeah. They're phenomenal. Well, I, you know what? I went to see them with you, and, and I think I'd have to back that up. I mean, yeah. those are strong words, but they are amazing. And, you know, I think that that the 90s was its own kind of animal in country music. And Marty was, uh, he had hits in the 90s. And if you're not very familiar with his work, there's kind of the 90s Marty. And then he did a really influential album called The Pilgrim that was not a commercial success, but was a dividing line. It was a critical success, but yeah. not a commercial success. It was a dividing line in his career. There's sort of everything that came before The Pilgrim and everything that came after. Yeah. So if you think you know Marty Stewart from 90s Marty Stewart, you don't know Marty Stewart. There is so much more to to the story. Um, and it kind of gets me thinking about the idea of how image works in sure. music and how image can influence people's perception of how they experience music. You know, so if you think Marty Stewart, you know, some of the more outrageous outfits of the 90s, yeah, sure. and you're like, well, that's not really an image I resonate with. Well, there's there is so much more uh, to to delve into to understand the many layers of, yeah. I mean, this guy's talent is just unreal. Well, that, that resonates with me as, uh, you know, as you well know, and anyone who knows me too well, know, I, I'm, I'm a big Elton John fan. <laughs> and, yeah, I can see some parallels there in uh, well, image. Well, sure. I mean, like, you know, because uh, you know, Marty's, uh, even Marty's hair, I mean, is, is kind right. of a, you know, you see it from down the street. Uh, <laughs> Marty's got kind of a big hairstyle. You got to um, love country music hair, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if you were to look at some of those photos, even, you know, uh, sort of his visual presentation from the 90s, I don't I don't necessarily think you'd look at that photo and be like, oh, that guy's going to put out the Pilgrim album. Right. Um, and I think Elton has gone through and, you know, honestly, some of this is Elton's fault. I mean, <laughs> no one made him dress up like Donald Duck. I mean, this is just he decided to do this. Um, but particularly the Elton stuff that I'm most into. I mean, if you look at the albums between like 19, well, 69 and 70 up to like you know 73 these are orchestrated you know uh narrative albums with these you know winding beautiful songs uh nothing that would indicate you know what you began to see as sort of the the muppet show visual experience of elton john <laughs> right. um and what's funny is like i don't know that elton suffered at all Right from it, you know. I mean, he, he, what's crazy about Elton actually is that I, I don't think I've ever seen an artist have hits in as many decades uh, and and be considered relevant almost without any kind of gap in it. You know, yeah. owned the '70s, had a really strong '80s presence, um, came out strong in the '90s as well with a couple of records, and and now uh, through touring and through critical acclaim, you know, the stuff he puts out now continues to receive tons of attention uh, but i would say that to a lot of people it's still crocodile rock and right. shiny glasses 
the persona sometimes can overshadow the depth yeah. uh, of what's there. And I think that, you know, with Elton, we've talked about this before, but, you know, Elton is certainly as talented as the Beach Boys or the Rolling Stones, but there's something about the way that he has presented himself um, that he's not always mentioned in kind of the upper echelon of, of rock royalty. Right. I mean, look, Elton's not hurting. He's certainly up there. But, right. you know, there's a, there, it's almost like he's not taken quite as artistically serious as some of these other groups where you isolate any era and he has probably had more hits than any other group or artist yeah. that you can name if you're just comparing them in, in any particular era. I also think that he's suffered somewhat from just being a few years too late to be part of what I would consider kind of the Mount Rushmore of rock. Um, I mean, if 1970 is when the world first really kind of started to hear about him. And if it had been 64 or 65... You know, when, when the Beatles were really starting to, to break through and the Stones were starting to break through and the Beach Boys were making their early records, maybe he'd be viewed as more of a contemporary. Yeah. Um, you're also talking about a solo artist versus a band, which I think has a little bit to do with it as well. Um, but, man, if, if you just look at the output, uh, it's it's hard to, to put too many people up there next to him. Um, yeah, yeah. But That's I still think probably the thing that he suffers from the most is that just people thought he was silly. and the music was rarely silly right right yeah yeah and and then the the flip side of that is would he have gotten the attention that he had had he not been sort of flamboyant and outrageous you know it helps draw attention at the same time so it's an interesting conundrum to think about the ways that persona and talent sort of interact with one another dialogue with one another to create you know the the image or the the public perception of any artist um, well, if Marty Stewart had had, you know, the the haircut of, say, like a newscaster. Yeah, we wouldn't have paid any attention. Yeah, I mean. You got to grab you got to grab the eyeballs, too, you know. Yeah. Um, Ouch. <laughs> so Elton actually has got an autobiography that's coming out very soon yeah. called Me, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Um, which is great. I love <laughs> totally. that. Um, and while we're on the subject of books, which we totally weren't on the subject of until I just <laughs> moved us to that subject because right. I'm, I'm skillful like that in my transitions. Good job. Yeah. So, uh, Marty has a new book out called the Pilgrim, a wall to wall odyssey. And I mentioned that, uh, Pilgrim, uh, record that was so influential, yeah. uh, that he did, um, now that record, 20 years later, is getting the attention that it deserves. There is a beautiful coffee table book that Marty has put together. Um, it has a CD in the book of the original album and a bunch of bonus tracks. It's a great, beautiful coffee table book. I can't even explain the the magnitude of it. It's all about Marty's artistic journey. It's about the roots of country music. It's about the future of country music. It's got brilliant photography in it. Um, and so we're going to have a little contest. We're going to give away a signed copy of Marty's book, The Pilgrim, A Wall-to-Wall Odyssey. And um, to enter that contest, you need to go to our website at songcraftshow.com. Go to the contact button and just send us a message that says Marty Stewart Contest. And then we will select a winner to announce uh, on an upcoming episode. But not only that, we already have another contest happening right now. We announced it on the last episode. Hot soup. (laughs) Our... um, our 100th episode was with Lamont Dozier, you'll recall, back, uh, back a few, few episodes ago now, um, which was an incredible conversation. 
After that conversation, I approached Lamont about collaborating with him to write his autobiography, and we did, and now it's coming out, um, and it's going to be coming out November 26th. I'm not sure when Elton's is coming out. These might be the most highly anticipated musical autobiographies of the season. Could be. So, you know, start thinking about those holiday gifts, everybody. Um, but we're having a contest. Uh, we're going to do a giveaway of Lamont's book. It's called uh, How Sweet It Is, a songwriter's reflections on music, Motown, and the mystery of the muse. That's alliteration right there. Buddy. Yeah. Well um, done. Yeah. So uh, what we're going to do is have people send us, uh, go to our website at songcraftshow.com, click on contact, and send us your favorite Holland Dozier Holland song. And uh, we will choose uh, a winner at random on the next episode coming up. And uh, what we're going to do is have Lamont uh, sign that book for the lucky winner and personalize it. So if your name is Tom and you want him to write to Tom, Lamont, whatever, uh, we will have him personalize it to you. If you know someone, let's say your spouse is a huge Motown fan and you want to give that to them maybe as a, as a holiday gift this year, then we can have Lamont make it out. He can, he can make it out to, to whoever you want. Um, and I can sign it too as the co-writer, but you can also say, <laughs> nah, man, that sort of devalues it for me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you get to totally personalize this thing if you're the winner to a degree that, uh, Maybe, you know, we haven't seen before in terms of personalized contests on this show. And if you choose a song that wasn't written by Holland Dozier Holland, if you say that your favorite, you know, Holland Dozier Holland song is one that's actually was written by Ashford and Simpson or by Smokey Robinson, not only will you not win the book, we're going to come to your house and take one of your books that you already have. (laughs) So be very careful. The stakes are high. The The stakes stakes are are high here. We're going to take our favorite book from your, if you have a book that I like, I'm taking it. (laughs) And if you want to make sure that it is a Holland Dozier Holland song, you better go back to episode 100 and, uh, and listen to our interview with Lamont. So you can make sure that you're in the clear, but don't do that yet because right now we've got an interview with Marty Stewart that you, my friends need to hear. Yeah. Or you can just ask Chiefs. Part two. Five-time Grammy winner Marty Stewart only had two professional jobs before launching his own artist career, playing in Lester Flatt's bluegrass group, then spending five years in Johnny Cash's band. As a solo artist, Stewart has scored 17 top 40 country singles, including top 10 hits such as Hillbilly Rock, Little Things, Tempted, Burn Me Down, and the Travis Tritt duets The Whiskey Ain't Working and This One's Gonna Hurt You for a Long, Long Time. Other Stewart songs that have hit the country chart include John Anderson's recording of Taking the Country Back, The Dixie Chicks' Tortured Tangled Heart, and Clint Black and Martina McBride's duet recording of Still Holding On. The release of Stewart's concept album The Pilgrim in 1999 marked a turning point and creative renaissance where Marty, in his words, stopped following the charts and began following his heart. He put together a highly celebrated band, The Fabulous Superlatives, and has since championed the beauty and integrity of country music as a uniquely American art form. He is a frequent commentator for historically oriented projects, including Ken Burns' ambitious 16-hour country music documentary. His most recent effort is Marty Stewart's Congress of Country Music, a Philadelphia, Mississippi-based museum, concert venue, educational, and cultural facility that will house his personal collection of over 20,000 country music-related artifacts. First and foremost, however, Marty is an artist and songwriter. His consistently well-reviewed albums over the last two decades are packed with original songs that celebrate country music's roots without ever feeling dated. 
The Grand Ole Opry members' songs have also been recorded by artists such as George Strait, Emmylou Harris, Linda Ronstadt, Patti Loveless, Kathy Matea, Winona Judd, Gary Allen, Billy Bob Thornton, Connie Smith, Charlie Pride, Porter Wagner, Guy Clark, and Johnny Cash. Marty, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you, Scott Beaumont. Glad to be on your show. Man, it's great to have you. We're uh, backstage here at the Country Music Hall of Fame where you are an artist in residence, so we might pick up a little sounds of crew and guitar tunings, and that makes it all part of the experience. Real life. That's right. That's right. Um, well, I was watching the Kim Burns documentary last night, and they were doing the, the Hank Williams uh, section, and you popped up on the screen, and you said, I had to write down this quote, songwriting is the most mysterious of all trades it cannot be explained and i thought oh good i'm gonna go talk to marty tomorrow about <laughs> songwriting something that cannot be explained <laughs> so we'll do our best <laughs> how many dreams have you had in your life and you couldn't wait to get to the breakfast table and tell everybody else about them and then you start telling the dream and you finally just go ah never mind never mind, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> but uh i guess the best way to explain a song is the results of what appears on the page yeah. and how it affects us as people so um but yeah it is it to me it's a divine mystery yeah yeah well let's talk a little bit about um your background as we as we build up to to marty the songwriter you grew up in philadelphia mississippi really began your professional music career playing in lester flats band when you were were still a pretty young kid um how does an opportunity like that come about I'd been playing around town. I started my first band in Philadelphia, a neighborhood band when I was nine. And uh, then I got a job in the summer of 1972. I was 12 years old with a group called the Sullivan Family Gospel Singers playing gospel bluegrass music. They were big uh, gospel bluegrass stars in that part of the South. Yeah. And so mom and dad kind of got used to me going out on the weekends and playing at churches and bluegrass festivals and uh, camp meetings and political rallies and those kind of things. And I fell in love with it that year and that summer. And I found out I could stay up as late as I wanted to, talk music 24 hours a day, hang out with cool people like you, <laughs> and uh, wear my hair and my clothes is exactly the way I wanted to, and nobody seemed to care. It was the perfect life. Yeah. And it had nothing to do with school. But then school started, and so it was like the circus dropped me off at the edge of town, and I couldn't stand it, couldn't right. stand it. <laughs> So it didn't take long till I got kicked out of school, truthfully. And I called Roland White, who was a member of Lester Flatt's band. Yeah. He, he invited me up on a casual comment, come to Nashville sometimes and ride along. So that's how it, I came up here for a weekend. Hmm. I was supposed to go back to school, uh, but it worked out that Lester offered me a job, and I've been here ever since. Wow. And you're how old at that point? 13. Wow. It's like joining the Navy, just right. a little early. <laughs> <laughs> Your parents were cool. They were cool. They were. Well, as someone who really began your career steeped in bluegrass, you know, that's a genre that that relies pretty heavily on a, on a canon of established songs. Um, not to say that there aren't new bluegrass songs, but bluegrass probably more than any genre values uh, tradition. Um, and I'm curious if you were at that young age awakened yet to the idea of someone making up their own songs, writing their own material. The first time that I ever realized that I needed a song, something to sing, uh, was before I came to Nashville. 
I got a call one day uh, from a buddy of mine who was playing. I was in the joy of first discovery of bluegrass music. He said, hey, they've invited us to come to some church tonight and sing a song. You want to go and play some mandolin? I went, oh, yeah. I was barely learning to play. Yeah. He says, you ought to sing a song, too. I went, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have one, but after um, – after it was over, the phone call was over, I went, I need to come up with something. And I couldn't think of anything I knew all the words to, so I made up a song. Huh. So I had it that night. And that night when uh, I was singing it, everybody started clapping and patting their hands. <laughs> and I thought, this is pretty cool. Yeah. And when I got to work with Lester Flatt, uh, I, I, what you said about bluegrass relying on old songs and the old uh, American songbook kind of thing, Appalachian Tales. But Lester Flatt was one of the people who did write. Hmm. And he wrote a lot of the foundational song or songs we consider foundational right. now to the bluegrass world. And um, so he always stressed the importance of writing. Hmm. Yeah. So you were kind of o aware of that from your earliest, that that was a, a component of artistry that, that one might pursue. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I was really into the Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison and San Quentin Records before I went to... Nashville, mm -hmm. and I noticed that John was uh, like on San Quentin. He said, "Here's a song that me and Bob Dylan wrote, or here's a song I wrote, you know, about the Starkville City Jail." And I noticed those kind of songs that he would say, "Here's one that I wrote." They always seemed a little more personal to me than just you know a, a bright light kind of hit. Yeah, and I liked that. I yeah. liked that because I felt like it made me know him better. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of knowing Johnny Cash, you did join his band around around 1980 and spent a, a good bit of time with him. I know you guys uh, not only were you in his band, but ultimately became very close. Um, but I'd love to kind of hear how you first met Johnny Cash and, and ended up working for him. Well, Lester Flatt passed away in 1979, so I'd been in his band for seven years. All of a sudden, I didn't have a gig, and the bluegrass world was full. All the bands were stocked. And I played a little bit with Doc and Merle Watson out on the circuit. And uh, a buddy of mine named Danny Farrington, who's a guitar builder in Southern California now. But th that time, he worked on Second Avenue and as as a luthier mm -hmm. at a place called the Old Time Pickin' Parlor. So I go in there one day to buy some strings or something. And I see this black guitar being made with a fancy eagle that is with gold tips on his wings and, you know, mother of pearl. Right. I go, who's that thing for? He said, I'm making it for Johnny Cash. I went, oh. <laughs> and I said, I want to go with you when you deliver the guitar. Because I needed a job, and I just really just wanted to meet Johnny Cash because he's one of my all-time heroes. Yeah. So I kept up with the progress of the guitar really close. And when the day came, uh, Farrington called, or the day before, said, I'm going to Jack Clement's studio tomorrow to take Johnny Cash's guitar. So I met him there. Yeah. And when I, the door swung open, there was Cowboy, Jack Clement, and John. And John stood up and shook my hand. He said, where are you from? I said, Mississippi. He just kept shaking my hand. He said, where have you been? I said, getting ready. Let's go. <laughs> and we hit it off like that fast. Yeah. And I guess four or five weeks later, I was in the band. Wow. <laughs> Pretty cool. Amazing. Uh, Johnny Cash is one of those guys, like you say, uh, you know, he was a great song interpreter and also a great songwriter himself and and you know like you mentioned that some of those things on the prison albums when he talked about writing 
you know, the songs himself that kind of resonated with you. Um, you, you kind of gravitated more towards, um, those songs. And ultimately, um, you would go on to write several songs with Johnny over the years. We'd love to get your thoughts on what you took away from Johnny Cash about the craft of songwriting, what you, you learned by being a part of his universe and working with him. Well, more than anything else, you know, what I took away from him, he was the most fearless, creative individual I've ever known in my life. If he wrote a song or if he came up with a television show concept or whatever came up out of his heart that he decided to go forth with, if nobody believed in it or nobody cared, that didn't matter to him hmm. because he followed his heart to to till it was said and done. Yeah. And a lot of times he was wrong at the outset and right in the long run. Hmm. People finally caught up with it. But that more than anything else um, was what I took away from him. And as far as songwriting, I just think he always hit it from a been there, done that perspective. And it's kind of like Hank Williams was about writing about a heart full of pain. Hank just seemed to put into very small and simple words what everybody else was feeling. And John had that that overall view. You know, he sat in a, the diplomatic seat sometimes I call it, hmm. and he wrote from that perspective. And his, but even from that diplomatic place, he wrote from a very down to earth perspective where it was accessible to yeah. everybody. Kind of authentic in, in a way that people absolutely. could just connect with on a that's right a at a heart level visceral level yeah yeah um well there's a lot to be said when you think about songwriting for you know the right song for the right artist at the right time um and not one that you wrote but i understand that you played a pretty pivotal role in connecting the right song with the right group of people that ultimately launched the super group the highwaymen i'd love to hear that story back in uh the earliest days we talked about about the sullivan family there was a uh kid in my 25 miles from philadelphia in lewisville mississippi named carl jackson mm -hmm. carl was a whiz kid musician and he got a job in nashville several years before i did playing on the grand Ole opry with a bluegrass band called jim and jesse mm -hmm. and we spent that summer of 1972 together with the sullivan family and one, in the course of like two days, I headed to Nashville to hope to get a job with Lester Flatt or somebody, and he took off to California uh, to go to work with Glenn Campbell, his hero. Yeah. And we would connect every now and then along the way, and he would always say, man, there's this song that Jimmy Webb wrote called The Highwayman, Cash Ought to Do It. And I never got around to listen to it, and Carl never let up on that. Hmm. And so I was in the band uh, the Cash Band, and we were doing a Christmas special, Johnny Cash Christmas special, CBS yeah. special from Montreux, Switzerland. And at the end of the night, uh, the guest of the, on the show was Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson, Willie Nelson, and Johnny Cash. At the end of the night, those four guys and their people, we'd wind up in John and June's suite, mm -hmm. having a guitar pull, passing the guitar around, telling stories, laughing, ragging on each other. Just <laughs> a great time. Yeah. Americans stuck in uh, Switzerland. Hmm. And the thing that I found interesting is that John and Willie didn't know each other. Huh. They were really not close. They admired each other from afar and barely knew each other. Everybody else did yeah, in various combinations. But uh, 
the guy that was producing all of Willie's records at the time was named Chips Moment. Chips was there. And Willie was cutting duet records with everybody at that time. Right. So we left Switzerland with the idea of John and Willie going to cut a record. So here we come back to Nashville. Dates are booked. Sessions are booked. Players are booked. And we go to record the Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson record. And it just was not clicking. Their voices were so unique unto themselves. They really it didn't have any magic, yeah. seemingly. So we cut a couple of days with nothing, really. And I thought about that scene in Montreux where everybody was sitting around and it was magic. They were telling stories. Um, and I called my cousin, Marty Gamblin, who ran Glenn Campbell's publishing company. I said, do you have a song there called The Highwayman that Carl Jackson's always told me about? He said, yeah, Jimmy Webb song. Glenn cut it. I said, make me a copy. And I went and listened to it at Marty's company and there were four verses, no harmony required. I went, I'll take it. Huh. And I took it to the studio and John and Chips Moment were in the studio. I said, come here, come here, come here. Play this, Chips. And Chips played it. And they said, play it again. And I said, there's your song. And John said, I want that verse about Starship. <laughs> <laughs> so we cut a scratch track. I sang the scratch vocal. And I think Glenn Campbell was called in in a day or two later to sing his uh, just a real scratch vocal. Yeah. And then one by one, the guys added their parts. But that's how it came about. Wow. Jimmy yeah. Webb owes me dinner. <laughs> right. I fly a starship across the universe divide. And when I reach the other side, I'll find a place to rest my spirit if I can. Perhaps I may become a highwayman again. Well, you made a couple of bluegrass-oriented albums for independent labels, um, late 70s, early 80s, but ultimately landed on Columbia Records in the mid-1980s and charted a half-dozen singles. Um, only one of them, Do You Really Want My Lovin', was one that you wrote, um, in that case with Steve Goodman. Um, talk about kind of where you were as a songwriter in that uh, early era when you're still doing a few of your own things and then also other people's songs as well. I was just trying to find the door. And I was coming up out of bluegrass world, coming up out of Johnny Cash band world. Um, country music was changing. Uh, the old world of traditional country music was kind of left, you know, relegated to the Opry and some, mm -hmm. you know, shows along the way. And the sound, the look, the feel of everything about country music was changing. So... I was trying to figure out how to straddle the traditional world of country music, which I come from, which had raised me. Yeah. I loved all those people, and I saw no reason to uh, discard all of that just to go be a part of another parade. I thought the whole show ought to move together. So I was just looking for a getting-on place. Yeah. Steve Goodman was around at that time. We were buddies, and he had the city of New Orleans going, and he and John Prine had written great songs. and So he took an interest, and we wrote some songs, and... I, again, I think the most honest thing was I was just trying to find a getting-on place. Yeah. Well, you moved over to MCA Records for the Hillbilly Rock album in 1989, scored your first top ten hit as an artist with the title track, which was written by Paul Kennerly. Um, but you also charted a couple singles from that album that you did write, including uh, Don't Leave Her Lonely Too Long, which Gary Allen later covered, and uh, Western Girls, which was a, a top 20 hit you wrote with Paul Kennerly. Western Girls got me jumping Western girls makes me glad I'm a good old boy. 
but it was really the the follow-up record tempted where as a writer and artist you kind of hit that streak with a couple of top 10 hits um little things uh and tempted the title track both written with with paul um and i'm i'm curious you know there are kind of there's like part one and at least part one and part two to your career if not if not more parts than that uh which we'll get into in a moment um and a lot of those early songs from what was kind of the most quote-unquote commercially successful period are not songs that you that you really play in your set much these days um tempted is one of those songs that that has kind of remained a staple. Um, we'd love to kind of get your thoughts on on that song in terms of, of where it came from and why that one still resonates with you now. Well, first and foremost, Paul Kennerly. I owe so much to Paul because, as, as you know, if you're looking for a record deal, if you're looking to get started, it's all about that hit. It's all mm-hmm. about, you know, the glitz and glamour and the hits. And so it was about chasing hits, but trying to find a sound and a look and a feel that was unique and you know that said this guy you know stands out because that i was raised again in a culture of country music where everybody should be an individual not yeah. homogenized have their own sound have their own look have their own feel their right. own vibe but kennerly gave those songs an international flair he's you know from england and he came up uh you know around the beatles and the stones and all those guys he had written a couple of incredible conceptual records white mansions and yep. the Battle of Jesse James. He was having a lot of success with the Judds. Emmy Lou and him were writing great songs. Kennedy was just everywhere, and he was really focused and really into that. He called them beat ballads, you know, mm. at that time. And he really had a hand on roots, the roots of rock and roll. Yeah. So um, it came. The first time I went to his house, he and Emmy Lou were married, and uh, we we wrote a song. And the next day, he called me and says, "I have a song here that I wrote for the Judds." but I think it really needs to go to you. I said, what's it called? He said, Hillbilly Rock. And I heard it, and I went, wow, what better way to get started? And then it was about, you know, just trying to hang on, get up the chart, and find our way and claw our way through the whole maze of 90s country. Yeah. A lot of those songs were pure reflections, in my opinion, of 90s country. They are likable. They were instantly likable. They were danceable. They were listenable. Uh, They made good videos. And they were good, you know, butt-wiggling songs. <laughs> and so I loved them, and I still love those songs. I appreciate them. But I, I always knew that there was something deeper out there, but it was a great way to get started. Yeah, yeah. And so what is it about Tempted that kind of still hangs on for you? Because that's one that you guys play, and, and it to me it sounds like kind of timeless. Well, that's the word. It feels timeless to me. And Tempted is one of those songs that, um, it don't care who's who's the president. It don't care who's the queen. It don't care who's you know on top or bottom. It's always there. Yeah. It makes no apologies. It's so hard to resist the thought of her sweet kiss. Can't take much more of this. I'm tempted. Tempted and tried deep down inside. Tempted was that one song. I felt like we got past getting compared to, uh, you know, this one and that one, and whether it was rockabilly or country, and it got past all of that, and it became what it uh, its own thing. And I was really proud of the Sonics 
and the feel and the look and the sound of Tempted. Um, well, you are, of course, married to Country Music Hall of Famer, Grand Ole Opry legend Connie Smith, um, and you produced uh, an album on her, a self-titled album, in 1998. Uh, and you and Connie wrote... Um, most of the songs on that album together, including the opening track, How Long, which you guys wrote with Harlan Howard. written at least a couple songs on the love and luck album with harlan a few years earlier but as someone with such deep roots in in country music um someone who is a songwriter uh talk about your experience of having the opportunity to actually work with the guy who basically is the gold standard of country music songwriting that was the beauty of nashville at that time and i'm sure it's still that way but there were so many of those old masters and master architects and master musicians hanging around that if they if they knew you had it and they recognized you as part of the tribe and part of the family, they'd throw their arm around you and give you any amount of assistance you needed. Hmm. And you know, and all it took was love and honor to, to get that job done. Harlan was just one of those people I dearly loved. And like you said, he is the gold standard. He is he was the guy. Yeah. Other than Hank Williams. Dallas Fraser and Harlan those were to me the country guys yeah and then there's everybody else but he liked he liked the music I was trying to come up with he saw that I was striving working hard to create and the best song the two of us ever wrote was a song called uh oh what a silent night that I uh, was on I think actually was on the that love and look record yeah but Harlan uh the way Connie and me got together was she asked me to produce a record she had made a record in 21 years I said, do you write? She said, well, some. I said, well, everybody knows you can sing. You need to write. And I think mm. what we kind of termed as our first loose date was we co-wrote that shuffle, How Long at Harlan's House. <laughs> right. What a great way to start a hillbilly <laughs> romance. So that was the beginning of it, right? So yeah. I didn't realize that you and Connie were not yet together no. when you made that record. And then Connie and I started writing songs. And if you write songs with her, they're going to be about love and you hear her sing those back, and all of a sudden, my heart was going, oh, no, what's <laughs> happening? It's melting in there. Right. You'd already been in love with her since you were a little kid anyway. So. Proclaimed <laughs> I was going to marry her when I was 11. <laughs> right. That's such an amazing story. Um, well, there were plenty more charting singles in the 1990s, both for you as an artist and with songs of yours like Still Holding On that was a hit duet for Clint Black and Martina McBride. But then you made an album that changed everything for you in 1999 concept album called the pilgrim. Um, the first album where you wrote every song and probably the first album where your record label went, we don't get it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and that, that really became a dividing line for you as, as a songwriter and an artist. Um, talk about the, the soul searching aspect of, well, give us a, a little a little background on that that project, um, but then talk about kind of the the soul searching aspect that kind of came before, during, and after that whole process. Because I know that's such an important milestone for you. 
Well, the truth is, um, as the 90s clicked on, country music just kept getting more gargantuan and gargantuan, and it became about production, and it became about, you know, demographics, and it became about, you know, it w we became a global blue-chip industry. Yeah. We went, the last of our mom-and-pop leanings as an industry disappeared, and, yeah. we, and we grew up and became a huge, huge industry. So there was really not much room for era and not much room for development anymore. Hmm. And um, I held on to the belief, and, and everything that I was trying with radio was just not working much anymore. So I tried chasing and keeping up with the parade for a minute or two, and I was miserable. I was just miserable. Yeah. And I went back to my roots and just stood there for a minute, and I thought, you know what? I have to go back to the original blueprint of, of country music set forth by the father of country music, Jimmy Rogers, and the themes of railroads and hoboing and love and loss and redemption and jailhouses and, uh, you know, gambling and rambling and hoboing and on and on and on, those things that were parodied for it sometimes now, you know, were set forth by him. And Merle Haggard and I used to talk about it and go, to this day, Jimmy Rogers is the man to beat because his songs gave us the shoulders upon which an empire is now built. Yeah, but according to every newspaper in the nation today, every one of those themes are still relevant. Yeah, so I wanted to go back to a place that was real, embrace my roots at the same time, try to take country music forward, broaden it, expand it, and take it to places. You know that innovation was always strived for. Yeah, sometimes we missed, sometimes we didn't, but I knew that I was on uh, cracking ice with the record company because the records weren't selling, the signals weren't really working. So I went deep. I thought, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die honorably. <laughs> <laughs> so I made the record called The Pilgrim, based on a true story of a tragic event that happened in my hometown. And it was Shakespearean in scope. And I put a love letter to country music as its, as its track. Themes all the way from Appalachia to current contemporary country music. And wrote songs to accommodate the story. It was deep. It, I sensed that serious music people fans and listeners would receive it give it consideration i sensed that scholars and critics would give it consideration because it was a it was a it was a hard departure from butt wiggling songs i am a lonesome pilgrim far from home Might be tired and weary, but I am strong. Cause pilgrims walk, but not alone. And I was right about that, but I also sensed that I was on, you know, shaky ground commercially. And so that proved to be the case. The record cost me a record deal and a band and a manager and a publicist and you know those kind of things right but life went on it's such a an admirable you know and obviously everything worked out i mean i guess it'd be a very different story of well and that was the end of marty stewart but that was the rebirth of really who you were were meant to be and it's admirable to see somebody who kind of was in that system that was kind of in the the machine that was the the music industry at that time say i just have to do this even if it blows up 
everything. Even if nobody gets it, it doesn't work. I have to do it. Well, I started looking around the room, and here stands Johnny Cash, Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, Bill Monroe, Willie Nelson, Miles Davis, uh, The Grateful Dead, Bob Dylan, uh, Mahalia Jackson. Just keep going. Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf. They didn't pander mm-hmm. to what their heart didn't tell them to do. Yeah. And if they did, they didn't do it very long. And they came running back out the door going, I'm sorry, I let, let me get back to on my rails now. So it became about getting onto that way of life that was bigger than anybody's chart or demographic. You know, mm-hmm. I've never looked at a chart since the Pilgrim. And mm-hmm. things have been just fine. <laughs> right. Some days better than others. Uh, but I, it, the heart became the chart. And I think as a songwriter, you either gonna you either Billy Bob Thornton had the greatest quote. He said, "I have to make me an asteroid movie every now and then, so I can do my real movies over here to the left." So I think as songwriters, you have to keep your eye on what's selling. Yeah, if you're gonna you want to you know you want to make a living. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. But then there then there's also the deeper call from what your heart tells you to do and who you really are. Yeah. Writing what you really think. Yeah. And you know that can get you in trouble sometimes and get you left out of the parade. Yeah. But I yeah. encourage you to do it. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, well, speaking of Billy Bob Thornton, you were nominated for a Golden Globe for your score to the film All the Pretty Horses, which uh, Billy Bob directed, starred Matt Damon and Penelope Cruz. That's a pretty different kind of project um, that, you know, creatively flexes different muscles than writing a three-minute song for the radio. Um, tell me about that project and how you kind of uh, approached the, the process of getting into to doing music for a film. I loved it. You have to tell a story without words. The music has to tell the story. Um, here's what I learned, it's, and it became the soundtrack of life. We're talking about country music. Um, I was going along the back roads of Missouri, trying to figure my way in and out of this pilgrim mess I'd got myself into. And I was listening to contemporary country radio at that moment, and I was looking at cows and barns and clothes blowing on the line and farmers and tractors and the and the sound of what i was listening to did not line up with the scene i was seeing at that moment yeah but then i put on um hank williams and you know some of my old merle haggard and bill monroe and all of a sudden the scene and the music lined up (laughs) and so knowing little to nothing about scoring films i took that to california with me and I would see a scene, and I learned very quickly if the music is authentic, if it hits all the right beats in the emotional moments inside the scene, and it's the right music, uh, a 30-second scene can go by in like in two seconds' time. Yeah. But if it's the wrong music, 30 seconds can feel like three and a half days. Yeah. So it's, it's about finding the magical combination and the harmony between what you're seeing and what you're feeling. Yeah, and yeah. Here, it's almost like as a composer for a film, you almost want to be, uh, you want to make an impact that everyone feels, but be invisible at the same time. If right. you notice the music, it's probably bad. But if you don't notice, it's probably doing a great job of making you feel That's what right. the scene is. And, you know, sometimes I tell somebody, I say, if you don't think music's important, turn it off. Right. <laughs> see if the scene still affects right. you the same way. Suddenly the movies get very, very boring. <laughs> right. Right. Um, well, as you were kind of returning to country's roots, the Dixie Chicks made a really organic acoustic record with no drums in 2002 called Home. Um, and you wrote the song Tortured Tangled Hearts with two of the band members. Oh, love, oh, love. 
I just remember uh, they were on fire, and I thought the Dixie Chicks at that time was, was such a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. Their music was happy. It was like Buck Owens the other way. It, it, when <laughs> Buck Owens' records came on the radio, or they still come on the radio, the sun came out. Yeah. And to me, the Dixie Chicks would come on the radio and wide open spaces of those kinds of things, and the sun came out. Yeah. I just love what they did. And they yeah. were different. They were unique, and they had they had their own opinions about things. And so I got called to come out and write a couple of songs. It was like, well, of course, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I love the records. Yeah, that, that album is fantastic. I agree. It's still a classic. I agree. Yeah. And that was back in the days when you could make some money on uh, album sales, and that one did pretty dang good. So it did. That doesn't hurt either. It did. <laughs> um, well, in the new millennium, you started releasing your albums with your band name, The Fabulous Superlatives. Um, started uh, pursuing, obviously, The Pilgrim was a, a concept record, which was not exactly what everybody was doing at, at that time, but pursued some additional concept records like uh, the gospel album Souls Chapel and Badlands, uh, Ballad of the Lakota. I'd like to hear about your writing process when it comes to thematic or, or concept records. Do you just kind of realize oh man, I've written some songs that have a, a theme here, or do you kind of set out with a project in mind and start working towards that? Well, I don't know that there's a, a real set answer, but when I first put the... Well, I woke up one day and went, okay, I've had a year off, and that's not like me. It's time to put a band together, and let's you know quit pouting and get to fighting again. <laughs> Go get back to the mission, whatever the mission is. Yeah. So the superlatives came together. Kenny Vaughn, Harry Stenson, and the first bass player was Brian Glenn. And I knew halfway through the first um, rehearsal, after we had settled on that's our that's who our band's going to be. I thought, whoa! I called time out. I went, this is this is not this band is not about chasing three minute records and you know and hoping they work anymore. Yeah, We're bigger than that. This is this is about. I said. I, I remember saying, I saw a picture of Louis Armstrong playing his trumpet in front of the pyramids in Egypt, and he was the ambassador wherever he went. Diplomatic status yet again. And I said, this band will represent who we are in our culture, where we go, because Kenny had been there and done it all, Mm -hmm. seen it all. Harry had been there and done it all. I'd been there and done it all, seen it all. Brian was a young guy. But I thought, we do not pander. Mm -hmm. We will take our case to the people. Yeah. Just get started. So we weren't on the radio anymore. That took that off the table. That was easy. Uh, new TV was still friendly. The Grand Ole Opry was still. The Country Music Hall of Fame was still there. And that became our underpinnings to get started. Mm-hmm. Named ourselves after a florist here in town. Emma's the superlative, the superlative florist. florist. I remember those old yeah. <laughs> commercials. And That's bought amazing. some suits and got started. <laughs> yeah. And the first record, I said, well, we learned to sing together by singing staple singer style harmony from mississippi delta gospel i said it's disappearing let's go champion it yeah uh the second record was badlands i've been going back and forth to pine ridge indian reservation since the early 80s connie and i got married up there i'm adopted into the tribe i said it's the poorest county in the united states of america let's go tell the story about those people past present and future then a bootleg record from the ryman came out and then you know records started happening but I always felt like we were an honored guest in everybody's world with nowhere to, you know, stab the sword in the dirt and go, this is yeah. our line. Yeah. And one day it struck me that traditional country music as a culture was under-recognized, under-loved, fading, and all the old stars were fading. And the job in my mind became get all the old-timers home with love and dignity. Hmm. 
and honor and make sure that all the new people know about it and it's alive and well and it's a great place to come play music. Yeah. And so that became the mission. And, you know, uh, again, I've been in bands since I was nine, so, but the bands I looked to was like, you know, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and the Stones, Willie's Guys and Charlie Daniels Band, you know, those, Merle Haggard and the Strangers, that, those were fraternity bands, you know. Yeah. The divorces and kids and wives <laughs> and husbands and tax problems and charts, everything comes and goes, but the band remains. Yeah. And so I think back to uh, this Kenny and Harry and, you know, now Chris Scruggs, um, that is my greatest asset, I think, is the superlatives. Yeah. It's my legacy band, my buckaroos. And we've kept our standards, you know, where we set them. Yeah. And uh, I think that keeps a band healthy. And it's always about new songs, not about where we've been. Yeah. Uh, well, one of my favorite of your albums is Ghost Train, the Studio B Sessions that came out in 2010. Um, and I just love the song Drifting Apart. It's such a great record. I'm a stranger in your world now And it's driving me out of my mind Drifting apart, drifting apart, darling, we're drifting apart, out of reach, out of heart, we're slowly drifting apart. Going down I-65 in Nashville one day. And the minute I started, and I, and I thought, I got to the end of the first course writing it in my head, writing down. So I was trying to drive and write. And the minute I heard, I thought, Ralph Mooney has to play steel on this. <laughs> this is Moon's song. I called him and said, can I come see you? So uh, I flew to Fort Worth, got a rental car, went to Mr. Mooney's house in Kennedale, Texas. We sat out in the garage, and we worked on Drifting Apart and a couple of others. Ms. Mooney made a spaghetti. We went up and ate, and... <laughs> And I wrote a song at the dinner table called, uh, um, oh, shoot, it's on that record, too. A Little Heartbreaker? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we ate spaghetti, went out and made a demo, a Little Heartbreaker, Moon came to town. And he was my all-time favorite, all-time favorite of all the country musicians that have ever passed. I love Ralph Mooney's playing. Yeah. And uh, that turned out to be Moon's last sessions. But you ain't nothing but a little heartbreaker. Tiny little teardrop mover and a shaker I swear by the moon and stars above you You got me wrapped around your pretty little finger My heart is a bell, you know how to ring her Said all of this to say, baby, I love you Anybody that understands this understands what I'm talking about is those people enrich your lives, mm -hmm. not just for the experience in the room with them, but that you carry them within your hearts for the rest of your days. Yeah. It's like Moon. I, I live in a fuzzy denial that Moon's still out there on the road with Waylon or right. he lives, uh, you know, in Texas. He's been gone now for almost 10 years, but shoot, yeah. I think about him all the time. And when I listen and hear him come on the radio, I turn it up and smile. And although, although I've heard those solos, 10,000 times, I don't, yeah. it doesn't matter. They're yeah. always new. 
Well, and, and I think, you know, it's our natural tendency when we listen to music to make connections of, oh, this reminds me of that and this reminds mm-hmm. me of this. Uh, and I always think when, when I hear you play lead guitar, I don't think what other guitarist does Marty sound like. I think Marty sounds more like Ralph Mooney's pedal steel than than any pedal steel player that, right. that I hear. But you really like capture those kind of licks, you know, and, and I always think, you know, people say like, what's the what's the Bakersfield sound? The Bakersfield sound is the Ralph Mooney. That's sound, right. You know, and and but it kind of got me thinking. I was because I was thinking about how, you know, you've kind of perfected that Mooney thing, but on the guitar, the B bender, but still it's pretty remarkable to hear the, those kind of licks on a, on a, on an electric guitar. But it kind of got me thinking a question that I wanted to ask you that is not something that I could ask most songwriters. Um, because in addition to being a songwriter, you are a fantastic musician. Um, not every songwriter is also a, a virtuoso picker. Um, and it kind of, made me wonder when you are writing, when you're working on a new song, are you kind of arranging at the same time you're writing and you're thinking of licks, you're thinking of solo type stuff, or do you tend to just kind of write the bare bones and then get to the studio and figure it out? I always write. I, I, I read a quote, and I can't say that I'm this way, but I read a quote Peggy Lee said one time. She said, I always knew what I wanted to do when I got to the studio. I didn't, there was no room for guessing. I, I tend to hope to get it 90% there and leave the last 10 for magic. Let everybody else speak into the process. Yeah. But you were mentioning Harlan a few minutes ago, and then Mooney. You know, I used to send Harlan $100 every January cause from everything I was going to steal from him that year. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd send Mooney $100 for everything I was going to steal from him. And I said, the rest will come later. Uh, but uh, I arrange as I go. I arrange as I go. Yeah. As best I can. Yeah. And again, having the superlatives because they all – speak into the song and you know usually it's a lot better after everybody gets through you know jumping in yeah yeah and those guys probably share a lot of your same instincts so they're gonna know they're gonna get it kenny and i i love kenny vaughn's guitar player one day in a studio and this is kind of the way it is um you can put i pushed my fader up with my guitar track and kenny's fader and we didn't even know what we had never even talked about what we were going to do and it was like the most seamless dance tapestry kind of thing you've ever heard and it, it knocked me out because yeah. you know, we just and you can only get there if you're soulmates and you get out there and play as a band and and play and play and yeah. play and play yeah second coming of buck and don yeah um well i've seen you perform live uh, several times in the last few years and you often play tear the wood pile down from your 2012 album nashville volume one and I always thought that was some old country song that I just wasn't Probably familiar is. with. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was really, I actually didn't know until I was preparing for this interview that that was one of your original songs. And it, it surprised me because it sounds like so timeless. It sounds like this long lost uh, classic. Tear the wood pile down, 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 tear the wood pile down,
I used to uh, walk around for years going, why doesn't somebody do a 21st century version of the Porter Wagner show or the Wilbur Brothers, those old shows yeah. that I used to watch and love, and you did too. And so um, uh, I got my wish, and on we did this show called The Marty Stewart Show. We did 156 episodes on RFD TV. Really, it was about one last gasp of the old world of country music and bringing cool people alongside of it. It's a yeah. great show. Yeah. Timeless. But the greatest thing that I have, two things I have to inspire me as a songwriter is a bullseye and a deadline. And having episode, 156 episodes, seven songs a show, I think it was, and, you know, TV gobbles up every song you've got. You can't feed songs to the TV monster fast enough. Right. So I would score out a show and go, well, I need this kind of song here, and I don't have this kind of song. And I'd find myself going in a room and turning around and coming out with, here's the song, and I'd show it to the band once or twice, and we'd play it. Tear the Woodpile Down was one of those songs. And uh, I liked it because it felt like it was an old friend, but at the same time, it had some new stuff about it. Yeah. Um, I think Way Out West was absolutely one of the best albums of 2018 by, you know, in any genre. Um, and it's really kind of your love letter to the West's influence on country music. But that ranges from, you know, Marty Robbins styled gunfighter ballads to, you know, the birds and, and, you know, you kind of from old Mexico to time don't wait, you covered all that, that ground of, of the, the Western influence in country music. And that, you know, for me being kind of my favorite kind of part of country music's heritage, um, what inspired you to to make that record? Well, I'm with you. And I, I, the, the Western sound, the Western edge of country music is somewhere I just I just naturally fit in. Um, I didn't think we, it came from a conversation at the in the bus one day. What are we going to do next? We listened to Pet Sounds, we listened to Sergeant Peppers, and we listened to you know various things that everybody just kind of brought to the table. And the more we talked, we started talking about how cool California was. If you were a 60s kid growing up, from watching the Munsters to Gilligan's <laughs> Island to, you know, Shindig and Go-Go Dancers and right. to Buck and Don and Merle and just to the cowboy shows of Gunsmoke and Have Gun Will Travel. We just kept going. Yeah. Cars, custom cars. And Chris Scruggs said it's the home of custom culture. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. And it just the more we talked, the more I thought, well, there you go. And but the Bakersfield thing, Vince had just done a record about Bakersfield, and nobody can ever top the originals. Yeah, and they're there for us. And I knew you were working on a grand box set of the Bakersfield story, and I thought well, I don't need to go down that trail. It's it's been well taken care. Of. So I went to the Mojave, and I made the Mojave Desert kind of my uh, my palette. Yeah. And I thought, how about a psychedelic journey through the Mojave with all things California? Basically holding on to country music and the Maddox Brothers and Rose and going from there. Yeah. And it kind of became an interesting listen.
got a um, Marty Stewart's Congress of Country Music, which is coming uh, down in, in your hometown of Philadelphia, Mississippi, which is a performance venue, a repository for all of your huge collection of you know, country music artifacts from over the years. Um, very cool thing that you're building down there. Uh, but, you know, you're well known for having a, a great collection of, you know, stage wear, guitars, boots, you know, anything related to, to country music's history. Yeah. Handwritten Hank Williams lyrics. I yeah. mean, it's unbelievable. Um, how'd you get into that? How did that start? It looked like um, the culture was being thrown away. First of all, I loved it. And those were the people that raised me. It was what I genuinely loved. And I've always been a collector at heart, whether it was as a kid, model cars or arrowheads or whatever. It just goes with me. But uh, in the early 80s, I bought a train case, Patsy Cline's makeup kit, for 75 bucks in a junk store in Nashville. I thought, this is wrong. Hmm. We need to start preserving this. Uh, you know, Beyond the Country Music Hall of Fame, that's the ultimate treasure chest. But as a private collector, I just started seeing... Suits, boots, guitars, manuscripts, personal effects, and junk shops and auctions and thrift shops with no dignity around it. I'm like, whoa, yeah. this is my family here. Yeah. And if you go across the state line in Mississippi, it says the birthplace of America's music. And they can back that up. It's amazing what has come from Mississippi and continues. So Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, there's a musical museum to his honor at the Presley birthplace in Tupelo. B.B. King has a Delta Blues Museum. The Grammys put in a, a facility at Delta State University campus, gorgeous. Uh, Jimmy Rogers, the father of country music, there's a little mom and pop museum that's been in the business since uh, the 50s. Mm. Mississippi Arts and Entertainment Commission in Meridian and country music, the spiritual home of country music, will be the Congress of Country Music. And it's an educational facility, as you say, performance, museum space. Uh, it's a cultural place. And uh, it's it's my life sentence. I bit off the big one this thing, <laughs> so it's in it's in process. We're raising funds. Uh, theater's been renovated now. Collections in town. Boards are seated, and piggy banks filling up. So that's where we are. That's awesome. Last thing I want to ask you uh, before I let you go is, we are now at the twentieth anniversary of the Pilgrim, the the misunderstood record. Um, 20 years later, it, it sure makes a whole lot of sense and is aged a lot better than stuff that uh, that maybe at the time everybody thought was cool. The Pilgrim has endured. is a, It's a really cool record, but you've got it's coming out uh, on a deluxe vinyl. You've got a new book, coffee table book, with the original album and bonus tracks and a CD in the book, kind of telling the whole story, the, the big picture journey. Um, so we're really celebrating the pilgrim you know with this with this 20th anniversary um talk about how you think of that project now 20 years on it's like an old friend that i love and there was as you said earlier in the in the talk there was life before the pilgrim musical life before the pilgrim musical life after the pilgrim it was a line in the dirt that um i had to go through in order to live with myself and i followed my heart at its deepest in in every deepest way but it makes me feel good because uh, the other night, the first of the three nights in the Artist in Residence series at the Hall of Fame in Nashville, we performed The Pilgrim from top to bottom in its entirety. Yeah. Didn't leave anything out. Uh, Amy Lou came by, was who was a part of the record. Pam Tillis came by, a part of the record. Chris Scruggs filled in for Earl Scruggs. Ralph Stanley, George Jones, and Johnny Cash did drop-ins from Hillbilly Heaven on the screen. <laughs> and it was seamless. And then... 
without those bells and whistles, we took it on the road the next night and did a pilgrim show. And it amazed me how, first of all, how solid the songs are. They hold up. They're fun to play. They're easy to play. And there's, there's a lot of heart and soul in it. And, you know, I counted like four standing ovations at uh, the show we took on the road to Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. And people were, couldn't get the record fast enough. And it's like, well, where were you 20 years ago? <laughs> right. But uh, thank you for being a part of the book and yeah. seeing beauty in the book and, and relevance in the book and the bonus tracks. You have been such a shepherd to this record. Uh, and it, you, seeing you come across, as I've said this about Ken Burns, it's kind of like watching the cavalry come across the hill. But thank you for being a part of it because I believe in the record. And it, it, when I'm dead and gone, it will be one of those records I think I'm remembered for. Yeah, absolutely. Marty, you uh, definitely have set a great example for, for people to follow your heart as a writer, follow your artistic impulses, do what, what is true to yourself. Uh, I think it's, a, it's an inspiration for anybody out there uh, writing songs. And thank you for all the years of great music. Thank you for doing this interview. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.